Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Tonight we will be specifically in 1 Peter 3.21, but in order to, to see the flow of the context, we'll, uh, we'll be reading from uh, 1 Peter 3.13 uh, down through the end of the chapter in verse 22. So 1 Peter 3, uh, beginning in verse 13. Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins, once for all the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, in, in recent weeks on Sunday mornings, as we've been considering the, the book of Genesis, and most recently uh, the accounts of Noah and the flood in Genesis 6, and then uh, the sermon on Genesis 7 and 8 last week, in the course of those sermons, I've made reference more than once to this text in First uh, Peter 3, which is difficult, but nevertheless is given to us for our benefit. And as we work our way up to considering in particular the text of verse 21, let's first of all notice here the overall context. If there's a, a running theme through the book of 1 Peter as a whole, it is this theme of, of suffering. Peter encouraging Christians who are suffering for their faith, suffering for doing what is good and right, and he encourages them to be strong and faithful in that situation. If they should suffer for righteousness' sake, he says, they are blessed. They are not to fear the intimidation of those who threaten them. They're not to be troubled. Rather, as he says here, as we just read, they are to set apart Christ in their hearts as Lord. They are to give a clear testimony to anyone who asks about their hope. They're to do so respectfully and with a good conscience. But Peter knows that this might get these Christians into hot water. You can be as respectful as you want in declaring the gospel, declaring the reason for the hope that is in you, and it might get you into hot water. And so he says in verse 17, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. You might, you might suffer for doing what is right. It might, in fact, be God's will for you to suffer in doing what is right. But even if that is the case, that's better than suffering for doing evil. 
And then in verse 18, he directs our minds back to the suffering of Christ. Christ also suffered. He is an example for us in this. Peter had already spoken about how Christ's suffering is an example to us back in 1 Peter 2, 21 and following. Now, obviously, Christ's suffering is an example. Peter says it is. But the suffering of Christ is by far much more than an example to us. And Peter here expounds on the uniqueness of Christ's suffering there in, in verse 18 and following, that he died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, which means that he was put to death in his humanity, in his human nature, but was made again by his divine nature. Again, as we considered this morning, that Christ, uh, in addition to the Father raising Jesus from the dead, Christ himself raised himself from the dead. And I think when we see uh, these, these contrasts uh, spoken of in regard to Christ, uh, in regard to the, the flesh and the spirit, sometimes you see it according to the flesh, according to the spirit. I think uh, in a text like here in 1 Peter 3.18, likewise 1 Timothy 3.16, Romans 1.4, when we see that contrast, I think what we're seeing is the contrast between Christ's human nature on the one hand, his divine nature on the other hand. So he's put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. And Peter uh, goes on then in verses 19 and 20 to make the connection between our Lord and the generation of Noah. And that brings us one step closer then to our text in verse 21, which shows the, uh, the connection and correspondence between the flood and baptism. The connection that Peter makes in verse 19 is that he said, in which he also went. And if you look back to 18, what is the in which he also went? Well, it is in the Spirit, in his divine nature. The Son of God went and made proclamation to the spirits who are now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Now, this is a difficult text. Luther's comment on this verse was, was great. He said, a wonderful text is this, and more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. And so Luther's pretty, pretty upfront that, that this, is, this is difficult. Historically, there have been several interpretations of the text. I find uh, most plausible the uh, view taken by Augustine and many since then that the preaching that is spoken of here was the preaching which was done by Noah in his day, preaching which was done by Noah through the Spirit of Christ. And I mentioned, I mentioned this on Sunday morning a couple of weeks ago, and so I take it in the sense that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, as 2 Peter 3, 5 says that he was, and that through his preaching, the Son of God was proclaiming the truth, the truth of the need to repent, the, the reality of forgiveness with God, and so forth, to the people who were alive then. Peter says they are the spirits who are now in prison, that is, in hell. They we're in hell in Peter's day, they're in hell now, but they weren't in hell in Noah's day, in the time while he was building the ark and preaching the truth. They were still alive then, they rejected the truth, they perished in the flood, passed into prison, that is, they passed into hell. And this then leads Peter up to making the connection between the flood and baptism. So the flood was this, this watery ordeal in which judgment is brought upon the wicked, but through which Noah and his family were saved. Hence, Peter says in verse 21, corresponding to that, 
Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Peter says that there's a correspondence between the way in which Noah and his family were brought safely through the water on the ark and baptism. In other words, just as Noah and his family were saved through the, uh, from the flood through the ark, so now we are saved through baptism. Baptism now saves you. What? Really? Did I just say that? Baptism now saves you? Well, I did say it because it says so here in Scripture. But Peter here explains what he means by saying baptism now saves you. And I will attempt to do the same. The first thing that we need to keep in mind is that when we speak of the the ordinances of Christ or the sacraments, that we are speaking of a thing in which there are two parts. There is the outward sign and there is that reality to which the outward sign points, inward spiritual grace. The outward visible sign in baptism is the immersion of the believer in water and the spiritual grace represented therein is a death to sin, being born again, rising to new life in Jesus Christ. And there are, uh, thus in a way of speaking, an, an earthly aspect to the ordinance, the immersion in water, and a heavenly aspect, namely new spiritual life. And in Scripture, the sign and the thing signified are often spoken of in such close connection to one another that the earthly and outward sign spoken of is, uh, is spoken of often as doing that thing which is, in fact, heavenly. Right? The, the, the two are, are so closely connected. And thus, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, when the elements present in their substance are bread and the fruit of the vine. And we, we take it for granted in discussions of the Lord's Supper that we often don't think about it, that Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, and we think, well, okay, this, this represents Christ's body, represents Christ's blood. This is not literally Christ's body and blood before us on the table. And thus we should also, in our discussion of baptism, because we see the same thing in the way that Scripture speaks about baptism. And therefore, uh, in Acts 2.38, Peter says, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Similarly, Ananias, speaking to Paul, as recorded Acts twenty two sixteen, says, Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And likewise, there's, at the very least, an allusion, I think, to baptism when, uh, when Paul says in Titus 3, 5, of the, the washing of regeneration. The uh, 17th century English Baptist, Hercules Collins, uh, said this on Titus 3, 5. He said, Baptism is a lively representation of regeneration. Therefore, can only affect believers. The apostle alludes unto baptism when he speaks of the washing of regeneration in Titus 3.5. His meaning is that the ordinance is a lively badge, symbol, and sign of regeneration and the new birth. And likewise, here in 1 Peter 3.21, Peter says, baptism now saves you. But what we need to notice here is that although Peter's language may be more striking than the other statements about baptism, this is the place in which there is an explanation offered. 
an explanation that is of the not this, but that kind of sort. Peter says, baptism now saves you. And then he explains what he means. I'm not saying this, but I am saying this. And so what does Peter mean when he says baptism now saves you? Well, he tells you what it's not. It's not the removal of dirt from the body. I think Francis Turretin said it well when he said that Peter clearly distinguishes the baptism by which the filthiness of the flesh is washed away externally from that which consists internally in the answer of a good conscience. Again, there's the, there's the external aspect and the internal aspect. The external washing with water in the name of the Trinity does not save anyone. Immersion in the water of baptism does not wash away our sins, nor does that washing with earthly water regenerate our souls. The earthly and external element does not save, but it is a sign of that which does save. And here we see uh, Peter making the contrast between the, the external and the internal. The external is the washing of dirt from the flesh. The internal, which does save, is the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This, in other words, is the baptism that saves, the internal baptism, the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, before we go on to speak about this, this appeal to God for a, for a good conscience, let me just briefly speak in regard to the ordinances, because I think there are at least two opposite mistakes that we can make when we're speaking and thinking about the ordinances. The one is to regard them in an almost magical or semi-magical way, as if the water itself conveys life and forgiveness and uh, saves us, takes us from a state in which we are under condemnation to a state in which we are saved. Baptism, the washing in water, does none of those things. But on the other hand, the other error is to think that baptism is an empty sign or it's just something that we do kind of because Jesus commanded us to, and so, okay, he told us to do it, but don't really know why, but anyways, we'll do it as if it was meaningless. But baptism is not meaningless. It has great meaning. It demonstrates to us and to others the great thing that God has done for us when he saves us through faith in Christ. And so just, just think about this. When God saved us through faith in Christ, what happened to us? Well, we were united to Christ. We were united with him through faith in his death, burial, and his resurrection. He died for our sins, and by coming to him in repentance and faith, we died to our sins. He was raised again for our justification, and we, by faith, are united to him in his resurrection. We ourselves are raised now to walk in newness of life. We were internally washed by Christ from all of our sins, and our external baptism, the immersion in water, is the sign of these things. The outward baptism doesn't wash away sins in the least, but it does point to the internal washing, the inward washing of regeneration and forgiveness of sins by the blood of Christ applied to us by the working of the Holy Spirit. And in just such a way, the waters of baptism themselves are not the appeal to God for a good conscience, but they are the sign of the appeal to God for a good conscience. Because you can be immersed in water in the name of the Trinity, 
without appealing to God for a good conscience. But nevertheless, the waters of baptism do point to that reality, the appeal to God for a good conscience. And so what is that then? What is this appeal to God for a good conscience? Or if uh, you're using the King James or New King James, it will read the answer of a good conscience. So to be sure, various explanations of this have been offered. One approach has been to say, uh, to say it this way, that God puts the question before man whether he wants to have a good conscience. So basically God asks you, do you want to have a good conscience? And you answer yes. Uh, the idea in this approach seems to be that uh, the one desiring a good conscience is seeking to gain that good conscience from God, seeking to be purified by God so as to have a good conscience. Others see this essentially as a pledge that is given by the person to God, a pledge to live conscientiously before God because now in Christ he has been cleansed from his sins. And so they, they see this as essentially the response of a saved person to God, a, a commitment that, Lord, I'm going to walk before you now with a sincere uh, conscience. Now, obviously, those two things are, are not quite the same, but regardless of the precise nuance that one may want to point on, whether it's an appeal to God for a good conscience, the answer of a good conscience, Toward God, I think broadly, I would agree with that writer who put it this way. He said, in whatever way the answer of a good conscience is understood, it is certain that the internal purification of the mind is designated. Whatever, whatever way you want to get there, ultimately what this is pointing to is the internal purification of our mind. That's, that's what's going on here. And this, in other words, notice from the text, is the baptism that saves us, this internal purification of mind and heart. And this internal purification comes to us, as Peter says here, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our purification, the very fact that we can have this good conscience before God and be cleansed from our sins, is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I think I agree uh, with that writer who expressed it succinctly and said, his resurrection is the ground of righteousness and the guarantee of victory. Christ's resurrection is the ground of our righteousness and the guarantee of our victory for all who come to Christ in faith. And so if Christ is not raised, our faith is futile. If Christ is not raised, there is no forgiveness of sins, there is no righteousness imputed to us, there is no eternal life awaiting us. But the good news is that Christ is raised from the dead, that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Just as the first fruits of the harvest were to be lifted up by the priest, according to Leviticus 23, so our Jesus lifted himself up in the resurrection, guaranteeing that the rest of the crop, the rest of his people, would rise in due time. Jesus has come and was delivered over to death for our sins, was raised to life for our justification. Jesus was raised, and at his return, he will raise up all who come to him in faith and repentance, all who have this internal purification of mind and heart of which Peter speaks here. 
It is through Christ's death and resurrection that we may have our consciences cleansed from dead works so that we may serve the living God, as we find in Hebrews 9.14. And thus it is in this way that baptism now saves. It's not the outward sign, but it is the thing that is signified by the outward sign that we, through faith in the crucified and risen Jesus, are cleansed from sin, are dead to it, born again and raised with Christ to walk with Christ with new and clean hearts and minds. This is the baptism that saves. All praise be to our risen and victorious Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the resurrection of Christ, that it is the ground of our righteousness, that we see in his resurrection that sins are forgiven, that righteousness is given to us, that we can trust in him because he has overcome death and because he has promised to save all who come to him. So, Father, we pray that we would come to him in true faith, that we would all truly know that inward purification, the answer, the appeal of a good conscience toward God. We pray that our consciences would be clean and that we would continue to live before you and walk before you with a clean conscience and holiness. We bear the righteous fruits of your Holy Spirit. We give thanks to you, O Lord, and we pray that you would strengthen us, that we would live and walk in this reality with hearts that are cleansed, with consciences that are clean before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.